end. I've just changed it around, okay. So good morning, you hope. It is good to see you. If you'd like to take out your outlines, we are completing the second part of a series we started a little while ago called Who is Jesus? And what we did is we looked at last week, who did, who did the people say? What did others say about Jesus? Who was he? And also, what did he say about himself? And from a Christian point of view, is he really God as Christian claims? Now, to lay the groundwork before we investigated the claims of Christ, last week we looked at one messianic prophecy, just one of them, one out of 300. Do you know which one it was? Can you remember? Isaiah 53. And it was helpful to discover. So we chose the one. Uh, next slide, I think it is. Yeah, here it is. We looked at the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And we asked the question, who is the suffering servant? Actually, 700, uh, 700 BC, Isaiah gave a vivid description of the suffering servant who would die a sacrificial death before uh, and for the forgiveness of many, for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's all in Isaiah 53. You'll read about it. It says there, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crucified for our iniquities. Upon him the chast- was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That was just a little part of it. We also quickly looked at um, the foretold Messiah. Would We can nail down who he was because the Bible says he was a seed of a woman. That was the first ring in, in the circle. He was the seed of a woman. Whereas everybody else was the seed of a man, remember? And it's unusual to have that phrase. In fact, it's the only phrase in the Bible that refers to the seed of a woman, speaking of the virgin birth. His father was God, and the mother that God happened to use was Mary. Second, he'd be the seed of Abraham. That means that he'd come through the lineage of Abraham. Not only that, further refined, it will be from the tribe of Judah, which is more refined again. And then again, further refined into the line of David. But it also says that he would be both God and man. Also, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And remember, there were two, but it specifically mentions the one at north, which is Bethlehem Ithratar. So again, it narrows the focus. And then he'd be preceded by a messenger, whose name was John, and would visit the Jerusalem temple before it was destroyed. And ancient history will tell you it was destroyed in AD 70. So that will have to happen before then. Not only that, but he would die in AD 33. That narrows it really down for the sacrifice of our sins. And finally, it narrows it down to really clearly and would rise from the dead. And we asked the question last week, who in all of history would hit that bullseye? There's only one contender, and it was Jesus who hit the, mess- uh, the messianic bullseye. So we looked at what the prophet said last week. And then we also looked at the, what the disciples said about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the, uh, sorry, was with God, and the Word was God. That's what, the, that's what the disciples said. Paul said, for in Christ all, circle that word, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He's God wrapped in flesh, Colossians 2.19. And also the writer of the Hebrews. So we've seen three different things there. The prophets, the disciples, and actually Paul and the writer of the Hebrews. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. This is an important term. The exact representation of his being. So if A equals A, that's the law of identity and logic, it's exactly the same thing. And here's the one 
who sustains all things by his powerful word. Now today, that's what others said. Now I want to focus and drill down onto what Jesus said. Did he claim to be God? Because you'll be fine people who will say, yeah, Jesus was a good moral teacher. By the way, never say that. Never give in to that. That's rubbish. I'm going to show you why that is later on. But what did Jesus actually say? Because you'll hear people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's also rubbish, which I want to arm you and forewarn you about today. First of all, he directly claimed he was God. He directly claimed. You see, perhaps no claim is more direct. You're going to want to know this because some of your friends are going to think he's just like Buddha or Hare Krishna or whatever else. But this is where he says it. No more directly, and you'll be looking for this. Are you, he's talking to Caiaphas, point blank, under interrogation. And Caiaphas' sister, and by the way, again, you can go to see Caiaphas's house. It's still there today, where Jesus had this question answered. Are you the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And he says, I am. Now, those two words in English have one meaning. I am. It's as you say. But for those hearers, notice that Jesus responded to the direct question with a direct answer, I am. Those two words are very significant. Because it was referring back in the Old Testament to a prophecy where it says, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas, when he heard those words, I am, it set off alarm bells in his head and all the Jews around him. This was a reference to the Old Testament prophet Daniel and the end times. The Messiah, the Son of Man, would come in the clouds to judge the earth. See, the first time he didn't come to judge. The first time he came was to save. I haven't come to judge the world. He came the first time. Second time he's coming to judge it. Remember that. First time he came to save. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Second time he's coming to judge. And this is what it's talking about, the judgment. That the Son of Man will come to um, judge the world. Now, where is that, by the way? That's in Daniel 7.13. You can look that up and read it for yourself come to judge the world on the authority given to him by God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And it also says, this is really what got the Jews irked at this point in time, in Daniel 7.13, which is where he's referring back to, that the world's people will worship him. Every knee will bow down. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the moment he heard this, the high priest tore his robes, which is a a sign of absolute indignation. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. See, he realized when he said, I am, he was claiming to be God. And that's why he had this reaction. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. There's a direct link between Jesus claiming himself as God and the wish to kill him because it was considered blasphemy. Because, of course, it's reasonable that no one should be worshipped apart from God. That's biblical. Yet, here was Jesus claiming that he will be the one to come from God and to rule and judge the world and to receive worship from the people. That's why he was upset. He was claiming to be God. And everybody knew it. 
While Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the I am statements to Caiaphas, John tells another occasion where Jesus claims deity by answering those famous words, I am. So he claims deity. Now this, occur, uh, this conversation occurs during a tense exchange with some Jews. And after several volleys backwards and forwards with these guys arguing about the identity, the true identity of Jesus, the conversation culminates with Jesus declaring to the Pharisees. Here he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of, my, of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the God goes, Hold on, you're not even 50 years old yet. The Jews said to him, And you have seen Abraham? Here it comes. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, look, notice the response again. They picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. I am. Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And you'll read that in John 8. Now, do you remember the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston in the movie? Uh, what he does when he encounters the burning bush. Remember what he asked God, so the bush is burning out there. And he says, he asked God, well, suppose I was to go to the Israelites to say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I say? God responds, he says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. You see, Jesus was claiming to be eternal, that self-existent one. That is why the Jews picked up the stones to stone him. If Jesus had never claimed to be God, he wouldn't have been crucified. So we see here, his enemies were so, we had his friends testifying that he was God. Now we see the response of his enemies because he was claiming to be God. So we've seen the prophets, we've seen the disciples, we've seen the, the writer of Hebrews, and now we've seen Jesus directly claim he was God. You see, he actually claimed equality with God. That's equal, A equals A. Philippians 2.6, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, A equals A, something to be grasped. Do not fall for the lie that Jesus is A minus 1 and the Holy Spirit is A minus 2. They're all co-equal. Again, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And again, in John 10.30, it says, I and the Father are one in unity. Again, the Jews picked up the stones to stone him because he's directly claiming to be God. So don't let anybody tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. And that, by the way, I and the Father are one, was a direct allusion to one of the cornerstones of the Jewish um, and Hebrew faith. That comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what it was alluding to. And that was when they lost it. 
Because this guy standing before him was claiming to be God. Now, I did a little bit of research this week, and out of the 52 parables, recorded parables, 20 of them, which is just, just shy of half, depicts Jesus in imagery in which the Old Testament refers to God. So, for example, on that table there in front of you, in the Old Testament, God is seen as the shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Jesus in the New Testament, I won't go through it all. You can look at that in your spare time. John 10, 11. Jesus is seen as the good shepherd in the New Testament. God in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New. Again, I am the first and the last in the Old Testament, referring to God. Jesus in Revelation 1, 17 there. Again, to be the judge in Joel, God is. And in Matthew 25, the bridegroom, the light, the savior, God's glory, and the giver of life. So in addition to making statements that affirmed his deity, he also took divine actions and performed miracles. He spoke also as if he was God. He said to this paralytic man, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the, of course, implication is, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive our sins. And here's a guy claiming to forgive sins, which by implication says he's God. He's claiming to be God. That's what he's claiming. They thought he was a fraud. And Jesus declared this as well. All authority, that's all, that's a very big word, in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then immediately he goes and does something that only God can do. He gives a new commandment. See, Mount Sinai, God gave 10. The Jews had muddied the water and multiplied that to 613 by the time Jesus came. Their own little rules and regulations. But he says, I want to tell you, I want to give you a new commandment. He gives a new commandment and only God can give them. Therefore, he says in Matthew 28, go make all disciples of all nations. That is a commandment. He had the authority to make it. And then again, he says, God had given 10, but here's another one again. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. So despite the fact that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, forbidding anyone other than God, Jesus accepted worship as if he were God. Jesus accepted worship on at least nine occasions. And I've just listed a few of them. There's more than these, but here are the top nine they came up with. Number one, as he healed the leper, he accepted worship. You can see that in Matthew 8, verse 2. A ruler whose son Jesus had just healed, he accepted worship there as well. After this, he calmed the storm on the Lake of Galilee, the disciples worshipped him. Matthew 14.33, the Canaanite woman, the mother of James and John worshipped him. The Gazarene demoniac worshipped him. A healed blind man worshipped him. All the disciples worshipped him. And Thomas, he's, 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 he's kind of like the realistic, skeptic, kind of like has faith sometimes, doesn't at others. Because remember, after the ladies came back from the tomb, he said, look, I know you said you've seen him, but unless I can see their marks in his hands, which actually were here, by the way, 
not here, because they'll never hold it. This is how they do. We know this from archaeological ruins because they've found many of the people who've been crucified with these stakes going through this part. I think it's called a patella. Anyway, in here. And he said, unless I see this, and unless I see this, uh, the, the, the sword on the side, I won't believe. And this is what happens here. Picking it up from John 20, verse 28. Thomas said to him, when you saw this, he said, Thomas, come and look. And when you saw this, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me and believed, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. So all of these people worship Jesus without one word of rebuke from him. Unlike when people came and Peter did miracles and God used Paul to do miracles, people would try and bow down at their feet. And Peter and Paul both rebuked the people. We're just mere men. Don't do that. They were right. They were just mere men. Not only did Jesus accept this worship, he even commended those who acknowledged his deity. So here we are in Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered. He says, you, when he was saying, who are you? He's saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus declared and replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my, by my father in heaven. Now let's put all this into perspective. I've done a bit of groundwork. I want to get to the guts of some of the conversations you're going to have from time to time in your life. I don't think anybody summarizes this better than a man called C.S. Lewis, who was originally an atheist, but became a Christian, and a very eloquent one at that. He wrote this. Among the Jews, there, was suddenly, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. As if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says that he's always existed. Think about it. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. When you've grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. Imagine your neighbor making these kind of claims. I am the first and the last, <laughs> the self-existent one. <laughs> do you need your sins forgiven? I can do it. Do you want to know how to live? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you want to know whom you can trust? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Do you have any worries or requests? Pray in my name. Hey, you need access to God, the Father? No one comes to the Father except through me. The Father and I are one. What would you think about your neighbor if he seriously said those things? 
You wouldn't, I tell you what you wouldn't say. You wouldn't say, gee, this guy's an amazing, great moral teacher. No, you'd say this guy's nuts because he's definitely claiming to be God. Again, no one has articulated this point better, in my view, than C.S. Lewis, who wrote this. Now get this. I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about him. Which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely just a man and said the kind of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let none of us come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. So Lewis, I believe, is entirely and absolutely correct. Since Jesus clearly claimed to be God, he could not be just a great moral teacher. Because great moral teachers don't lie. They don't deceive people by falsely claiming to be God. Because Jesus is clearly claiming to be God. Since Jesus claimed to be God, there are only three logical possibilities that, you can, that could be true. Number one, he was either a liar and he knew he wasn't God and he just lied. That's a logical possibility. Number two, he really thought he was God and he wasn't. He was a lunatic. He was deluded. Or three, he was the Lord. Now, it's one thing to claim to be God. Anybody can do that. But it's another thing to prove it. Yeah? Another thing to prove it. Talk's cheap. As was seen clearly, Jesus claimed to be God and he acted the part. Jesus Christ of Nazareth claimed, you need to remember this, he claimed, so next part, next slide, yeah, he claimed and he proved to be the Messiah God predicted by the Old Testament. Now his claims come in many forms. Three we looked at, just briefly. One is from the, the direct I am statements. Secondly, his actions, including forgiving sins and assuming authority for God and issuing new commands. Also, by accepting worship due only to God alone, because he's the only one worthy of worship. But he didn't just claim it or act it, he proved it with three unparalleled proofs. Number one. 
he fulfilled 300 messianic prophecies at his first coming. We looked at the probability last week of just eight of them being fulfilled. Do you recall that? But it was actually over 300. Then secondly, the second proof is he predicted ahead of time, and you can see this in secular history. You can go back and you can read Josephus and Tacitus and on and on and on. He predicted and then accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. And then he lived a sinless life and performed miraculous deeds. Now I just want to pick up briefly as we close this part about the sinless life. What's this idea about Jesus being sinless? Well, Jesus said himself in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you? And the mouths were silent. Moreover, his disciples spent three years with him day and night, claimed that they claimed that Jesus was sinless. Peter, for example, which is one of the closer inner three, characterized Jesus as an unblemished and spotless lamb who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's Peter. And then John said of Christ, in him there is no sin. And then Paul wrote that Jesus knew no sin. Again, the writer of the Hebrews made the same point in claiming that Jesus was without sin. Now, I ask you, if you, which you're going to get to do fairly soon, you're going to spend three days with some people you may have not seen for a while, maybe over Christmas. If you just spend three days with any human being, much less three years, you'll definitely find faults, right? The New Testament writer said that Jesus had no sin. Let's wrap this up. Jesus' claim to be God was miraculously confirmed by his fulfillment of many prophecies about himself. 300 of them. You can count and go through. And as it starts to dawn on you how ridiculous the odds are, it says something special about this man. His sinless life and miraculous deeds. Look, this is the heart of Judaism. The heart of it, where it's been for thousands of years, and overnight he turns this, up, this thing upside down. Something happened in Jerusalem so that there were over 300,000 Christians, Jewish Christians, in Jerusalem in the early New Testament period. Something had to happen. Well, how do you know? Well, they saw that. How do you know? There'd be a lot of talk going on. And for that to get flipped on its head so quickly, what is the best explanation for that massive change of culture from a guy who is born of lowly esteem, had no great parents, as it were, not wealthy, not smart, not intellectuals of the day, but somehow the whole of the world, so much so that today the very date you use to date today's date is referencing his birth. What happened? What is the best explanation? So his sinless life and miraculous deeds and his prediction and accomplishment of his resurrection. Therefore, here's the deal. Whatever Jesus, who is God, teaches is true, and thereby implication, whatever is opposed to what Jesus teaches is false. Let's pray.
Father, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, we recognize that nobody comes to you except through Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending Jesus, who came from heaven to earth. Father, we want to understand more of your plan and your purpose. Help us not to be sidetracked and distracted by all the trinkets of this world. Help us instead to fulfill the new commandments that you've given to us to make disciples. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to share your good news at Christmas Wonder Park. Help us, Lord, to love one another. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit will encourage each one of us to search your word, which is perfect and true and infallible. Help us to learn more of your ways and your will. And for those who have never heard of your love, Father, would you reveal to their hearts and their minds the amazing love that you have for them. Father, may they be drawn willingly to you to give their lives to you today. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen.